It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Nine in 10 adults today have some component of metabolic illness. For the first time in human history, we have more overweight people walking the earth than underweight. And and by and large, people are being taken down by these kinds of diseases of civilization, diseases that that are essentially driven by being undernourished and overfed. Those three factors make those kinds of foods, particularly when they're all you have access to, a recipe for disaster. Americans, by and large, are not in a good state of health, right? Nine in 10 adults today have some component of metabolic illness, which is a really sad statistic, but it's true. Nine in 10 adults- Do you think that you can be profoundly overweight and still be healthy? I think that you can be more healthy or less healthy at a given weight, but it's, it's without controversy, better to not be obese. And, okay. today, and why, why would you say that's without controversy? Because I would say certainly in Instagram circles, that's going to be very, like people are going to push back on that. I can already feel them typing in the comments as yeah. we speak. Um, so in what way is that incontrovertible? Well, obesity is not healthy. Um, it's a disease. And I think today we have a number of different sort of voices that are coming at us that are trying to obfuscate the reality of the fact that obesity is a disease. Now, it is associated with the onset or worsening of non-communicable chronic conditions like type 2 diabetes. Um, Your risk for developing type 2 diabetes is dramatically higher if if you're obese. Cardiovascular disease, it's not good for your joints. Um, It's an inflammatory condition. Um, Neurodegenerative disease. So it's, it's by and large not healthy. That being said, I think it's a positive thing that we're seeing people at different stages on their fitness journey today. Um, but to point to somebody who is obese and uh, try to put a spin on it as if that's an aspirational state to be, mm. I completely disagree with that. And I would say that all of the you know, most credentialed medical experts um, would also corroborate that. Um, that being said, Beauty is subjective, right? So to conflate health and beauty, I don't think is is smart. I think Mm -hmm. that we should all practice self-love. There shouldn't be any shame attached uh, to obesity. We should we should be encouraging, yeah, we should be encouraging people um, to you know to to shift their body at at any stage to a more healthy state. And it's also true, I should add, that you can't really tell much about a person based on how they look from the outside. And you can also be unhealthy and underweight. Which, mm-hmm. is a, which is a major medical, medical problem. But today, for the first time in human history, we have more overweight people walking the earth than underweight. And, and by and large, people are being taken down by these kinds of diseases of civilization, diseases that are, that are essentially driven by being undernourished and overfed. And I think at the foundation of this, this epidemic, where by the year 2030, one in two people are gonna be not just overweight, but obese, right? Are 
ultra, ultra processed food products that by and large we overconsume today. Your average American today derives 60% of their calories from ultra processed foods. These are the foods that line our supermarket aisles. So just to make it really simple for the audience, you know, our supermarkets tend to be designed the same way. It's the, the perishable fresh food that tend to be around the perimeter. The aisles have all the shelf stable convenience foods that are minimally satiating, highly calorically dense and hyper palatable. So those three factors make those kinds of foods, particularly when they're all you have access to, a recipe for disaster. And so it's, it's driving disease, I think, in a, in a major way. And when it comes to the, food, the kinds of things that people should, be, should, should learn how to identify and thus avoid, I think we have to all be more mindful of the added sugar epidemic. Added sugar is insidious today. It's in everything. It's in, it's in sauces. It's in coffee beverages, right? We go to coffee chains for a cup of coffee. We end up drinking uh, dessert. Your average person today is consuming 77 grams of added sugar every single day. So just to visualize that. added sugar. So this is sugar for which we have no biological necessity, no biological need. It's the sugar that food manufacturers are pumping into these ultra-processed food products. Usually, is there some amount of sugar in that product that's not considered added sugar, or every gram of sugar in that is added sugar? Yeah, if you were to look at the nutrition facts label, label of an apple, it would say zero grams of added sugar. But an apple, a Honeycrisp apple, has about 24 grams of, of, of sugar in it. It's not added. Right. But the sugar in an apple, for example, is bound to the food matrix, which includes fiber, it includes polyphenols, um, lots of water, so it's, it's highly self-limiting. And that's not the case with these ultra-processed food products. We don't tire of eating them. There was a seminal study published in 2018 funded by the NIH that showed us when you give adults access to an ultra-processed food diet and, and, you, and you tell them to basically eat until you're full, eat until you're satisfied, they end up eating to a calorie surplus of about 500 additional calories. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, goes back to the fact that these foods are minimally satiating and added sugar in particular we don't tire of eating it. We have no- Let's get into why sugar is so bad. So, you know, we started this by saying that, one, I wanna reinforce many people that I love. I grew up in a morbidly obese family. So when I say that I don't pass judgment on them, love them to death, um, but wanna see them live as long as possible, I'd love to know if anybody's ever done a study of like, um, what age do we see what BMI? Because I'm guessing that as you get older, the BMI just starts dropping, 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 dropping until you basically you don't see obese 90-year-olds, right? Yeah, that's so true. So it's really, there's something fascinating there in terms of it's what it does to longevity. So going from that standpoint that I'm guessing that basically everything that we're going to strip out of people's diet is because it causes some variation of metabolic disease. We're making the base assumption that our North Star is longevity, health span, and call it performance, yeah. yes? Yeah. Okay, so um, if we're knowing that we're marching towards that, and sugar is the first thing that we strip out, give it to me at a biological level, why are we stripping sugar? What's it doing metabolically that's gonna really ruin our ability to live for a long time in a healthy way and at high performance? Well, I think that the, the perception around sugar has sort of evolved, which is, a, which is a very positive thing. I don't, I don't necessarily think that a little bit here and there is toxic in any sense. I don't think that sugar is the sole smoking gun for the obesity crisis. There's nothing inherently fattening about sugar. What? But it's, yeah, I mean, well- You mean I, the dose makes the poison or? I would say that the, the reason why sugar 
plays a role, added sugar plays a role in the, in the obesity epidemic is because we don't tire of consuming it. And its addition to ultra-processed food products may contribute to the characteristic known as hyperpalatability. Mm -hmm. So it makes those foods prone to overconsumption. All right, is hyperpalatability the problem or is there another mechanism that kicks in? So here's a theory, I forget exactly who put this forth, but basically, hey, fruit comes around in the fall. Mm -hmm. Fructose is designed to make you fat. It basically makes mitochondria less efficient on purpose. You start kicking off all of this, um, basically you're wasting energy, raising your body temperature, uncoupling something and it lets off heat. And you're doing all of that in conjunction with um, making your cells more insulin resistant so that you're basically storing more of the glucose in your bloodstream so it's not basically getting out of your body or even getting shoved into your fat cells because you want to keep your fat cells the way that they are. You even want to store some of the glucose in the bloodstream. And you're doing all of that, trying to give your body the signal to store, store, store. And the reason that worked from a um, longevity standpoint is you were more likely to survive the winter. Yes. And so you've got sugar not only as a hyper palatability thing, but that it's also a signaling molecule telling your body winter is coming, store this shit up. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. So we have to, we have to kind of reconcile two truths here. So the first truth is that um, sugar, when sugar is present in the blood, when our blood sugar becomes elevated, it tells our pancreas basically to secrete the hormone insulin, which is the fat storage hormone. It's secreted basically, and it, and it's, and it serves two essential roles. One is to shuttle glucose into, you know, into the cells that, that need it, right? So your musculature, your skeletal muscle, your liver, these are the only places really that are able to store sugar in the body, and they store it for a good reason, because they use it as an energy source, right? When you're doing high-intensity anaerobic exercise, your muscles require stored glucose in the form of glycogen to perform that high-intensity work. The second um, function that insulin serves is it gets the sugar out of your blood, because when, you, when your blood sugar is chronically elevated, that's toxic. It's actually glucotoxic. We know that chronically elevated blood sugar damages your blood vessels, it glycates your your red blood cells, right? That's something that you can measure with a test called the hemoglobin A1C. And insulin also turns your fat cells into a one-way valve. So it prevents lipolysis, which is the release of free fatty acids from your fat tissue, basically. And that does serve a purpose of helping to partition energy so that when when sugar is available, our muscles are burning sugar as as opposed to burning fat. So it does block the burning of fat. However, if, you're in a, if your body is in a calorie deficit, it knows that you've got energy stored in your fat tissue, and so it's gonna be able to circumvent the fact that insulin typically acts like a one-way valve on your, on your fat cells. So when insulin is elevated, calories can flow into the fat, into the fat cell, but they can't flow out. Um, but again, if, you are, if your body is starving for energy, if you're in a calorie deficit, insulin is gonna come down, um, and those calories are gonna be released anyway. So I think even if you have glucose in your bloodstream. Yeah, I mean think look at bodybuilders who eat massive amounts of carbohydrates while in a calorie deficit. They are still able to get shredded, right? So insulin you need elevated insulin to store fat. But if you're in a calorie if you're in an energy deficit, your body is going to be able to draw those calories regar- regardless. Right. So now then let's look at other qualities of sugar. So I hear a lot of calories a calorie 
and hey, look at the guy, the Twinkie guy ends up losing fat. Get it, you just explained why. But if my cells are made of the things that I eat, am I really, by doing a Twinkie diet or something like that, where I'm eating you know, different oils, I'm eating trans fats, whatever, am I doing damage to my body at a cellular level that might not be detectable from just looking at me and seeing that I'm either in shape or not in shape? Yeah. So. I don't want people to think that I'm promoting a, a, a high sugar diet because again, sugar, it's got this hyper palatable quality. Also, thanks to really robust meta-analyses, we see that people, healthy individuals who are on high glycemic index diets, so diets that are very sugary, right? Diets that contain a lot of refined grain products are at, are at increased risk of developing type two diabetes. So we know that chronic elevations of blood sugar, even if you're, if you're young and healthy, is not good. It's not good to your metabolic system um, it glycates the, pro- the proteins in your body. And I'm, I have this hypothesis that uh, it's really lifetime exposure of glucose um, that over the long term is, is damaging. Um, and lifetime exposure basically implies the area under the curve of all of the, you know, all of the glycemic excursions that your body has seen over the years, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's one reason to reduce glycemic variability. Also, we know that when we eat high sugar, when we ingest a high sugar bolus, it tends to um, drop our blood sugar because again, insulin, it removes sugar from the blood. But the way that it works, the pancreas is not an an instrument of precision. It functions more like a blunt tool. So for somebody that's eating a lot of sugar, it actually can send your sugar, your blood sugar below baseline, which can trigger anxiety in people who are prone to it. It can leave you feeling hangry, right? Consuming lots of sugar also outside of the conversation regarding weight, which again is ultimately um, dictated by energy balance, consuming a high sugar bolus can also elevate your blood pressure, which we know is a risk factor for neurodegeneration. Um, We've seen that one high sugar bolus, about 75 grams uh, of sugar, can cause your systolic blood pressure to elevate for two hours post-ingestion, which is no bueno. We've also seen that a high sugar bolus can reduce testosterone by about 25%, which also persists for two hours. Yeah. Why? Any guesses why we'd have an evolutionary response to sugar that lowers our testosterone? That's a good question. I'm not, I'm not sure, although I would, you know, I think that when we see an, a, an onslaught of sugar in the blood, um, particularly from in these, in these clinical studies, they're using the, these sugary beverages oftentimes from what are called oral glucose tolerance tests. There's no, a hunter-gatherer would have never had access to that kind of rapidly digested sugar mm. deluge, right? Because we would have had fruit and our fruit as hunter-gatherers would have been a fraction as sweet as they are today. But the notion of fruit juice or a sugary high glucose, 75 gram glucose beverage, for example, didn't exist. Um, so I think what it does, is it sends our body into a stress state. Um, and so that's, I think, one of the reasons why we see the elevation of blood pressure. And I would also assume because stress can reduce testosterone, I, th- I, would, I would guess that that's one of the mechanisms there as well. So That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, we are seeing a decline in testosterone. Among, that's in general, though. In general. Yeah, are we, I've always assumed that's multifactorial. That's poor diet, that's adding on weight, that's uh, some of the societal things that are happening, that's uh, BPA. All of the above. Yeah, it's like a big... Well, all of the above, but as I mentioned in that study where they saw a 25 
When it comes to platforms that will help you run a business, there is no shortage of options on the market. But if you want to use the best, most advanced, and most efficient platform out there, you need to be using Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools, Tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start, run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 5% reduction in testosterone. They used a 75-gram sugar bolus, right? Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, your average adult today consumes 77 grams of added sugar every single day. So they're consuming that every day. So yeah, the added the added sugar thing, I think, is uh, it's a problem. Now again, if you have a big calorie budget, if you're a bodybuilder, if you're um, 
you know, if you're if you're burning an uh, uh, an intense amount of calories on a daily basis, you do have a, a, a discretionary caloric budget. But for your average person, again, today your average person is, is overweight, bordering on obesity, um, has some component of metabolic illness, glucose dysregulation. I would say that being being a sleuth and being able to identify added sugar and then and then cut that out. Um, or at least minimize your, your consumption of it, I think you'd be doing your health major favors. So one more question along that. So let's say that I'm a bodybuilder, I'm yoked, huge muscle mass, and I am burning a ton of calories, I'm using my muscles a lot, and I live for the next 30 years on a high sugar diet by calorie, but I live in a caloric deficit, so I still look awesome, six-pack abs, I'm lean, um, do you think that I'm going to be getting glycated tissues? Like, is there, am I paying a price internally, even though I'm lean? Yeah. If I were to do it for that long? I, I don't think anybody's done that study, but just curious no. what you think. So there's a, there's a debate actually raging right now um, in, the, in the sort of nutrition community as to whether or not um, chronic glucose spikes, which yield chronic insulin spikes, um, is at the etiology of insulin resistance. Um, or whether it's purely uh, uh, a sort of energy toxicity scenario. Um, what we do see is that insulin resistance precedes chronically elevated insulin by sometimes 10 years. So it might be the case that those chronic spikes of insulin um, wrought by chronically eating you know, high sugar, regardless of where you are with your calories, mm. might actually uh, cause somebody to develop insulin tolerance. Because cells develop a tolerance to chemicals that they are chronically exposed to, right? Yeah. And so if we're chronically exposing our cells, our tissues, to high levels of insulin via our diets, regardless of where, you know, whether or not we're in a, in a calorie deficit or surplus, then they might, they might theoretically develop this, this sort of insulin um, resistance. And, I, and there is a debate about that. So, you know, I'm, my, get, my best guess would be because of these meta-analyses that are showing that high glycemic diets will, will predispose us to developing type 2 diabetes, I think it's best to really minimize glycemic variability, to know, um, you know the kinds of foods that are going to cause your, your blood sugar to go through the roof and then to, to minimize them and to use glucose-yielding um, starches as a, as a performance-enhancing tool, really. Um, and I, you know, I, I eat starches, I eat sweet potatoes and, and you know, the, the occasional grain... Um, but I am ultimately looking to make sure that I'm keeping my blood sugar stable because, mm -hmm. you know, whenever your blood sugar is elevated, you're, you are essentially glycating the proteins in your body. You're, you're damaging the proteins. You're, it's, this, it's this sort of non-enzymatic reaction between sugar in your blood and protein, and it, it essentially drives decay and damage. Um, also, when your body's in a low insulin state, you're allowing for gene pathways to, to activate that are associated with longevity, like FOXO3, um, CERT1. So these are all very complicated sort of gene pathways, but um, we know that chronically high levels of insulin are sort of like in opposition to those to those pathways. All right, so we've got sugar. Yeah. We're not going to mess around with that. Uh, what else are we removing from our diet? Are we messing with dairy? Where are we at on that? Oh, man, I love this question. So I've actually, my, my views on, on dairy have evolved um, recently. Dairy is, when you look at a glass of milk, it's a solution of water and fat, right? But the fat doesn't stay at the top, right? Don't right? Like, have some sugar in there? Uh, there is lactose, yeah. There is a natural source of, it is a natural source of sugar. But um, it's not like oil and water, right? The, mm. the fat globules are suspended in the solution of, 
of essentially 95% water, which is what milk is, right? The triglycerides in dairy are bound by a lipoprotein, essentially. Like, you know, you've heard of lipoproteins like your LDL cholesterol. Milk is comprised of lipoproteins called milk fat globule membrane. Mm. And these globules are comprised of proteins like uh, sphingomyelin, which is an important structural component of, of myelin, right? The myelin sheath in our brains. It's comprised of phosphatidylcholine. So I think that actually there's a lot of good stuff to be had in full-fat dairy. And it also, these globules in milk affect the way our bodies respond to them. So dairy is unique among fat-containing foods in that it's got a higher proportion of saturated fat than any other food. So if you look at any natural fat-containing food... steak? Yeah, steak is actually about 50% um, monounsaturated fat. And you've got a fair amount of polyunsaturated fat in steak, particularly grain-fed steak. And then you actually have a, a relatively small proportion of saturated fat in steak, even though it gets like, people are like, oh my God, the saturated fat right. in steak. Um, dairy has a much higher proportion of saturated fat. And yet, paradoxically, we see that people who consume full-fat dairy tend to have better cardiovascular health, better metabolic health. And I think it's due to the, the presence of this milk-fat globule membrane. So my hypothesis is that it's really good for um, brain health if you can tolerate dairy. So a lot of people are, are lactose intolerant. But um, if you think about it, when a baby is born, especially a, a human baby, right? A human baby continues its development in the world. It's actually sometimes referred to as the fourth trimester of development. And um, breast milk is loaded with these globule, with these globules, right? That must be there, in, at least in some way to support the development of the brain, which is undergoing rapid uh, organization and growth um, during the time in which a baby is, is feeding, right? So, um, so I've actually, I've become a big fan of full-fat dairy. I think it's a great, uh, a great food. But I will offer the caveat, and this is another area with regard to dairy where my, my views have evolved, um, and, and, uh, and we could also even perhaps call this a food that, I've, that I would recommend avoiding for some, um, and I know I'm going to get some hate from the paleo community for this, but uh, I think that butter is actually a food that's worth um, relegating to uh, like the indulgence category. And the reason for that is that when, first of all, butter is a man-made product. Dairy is made by nature, right? But butter is made by people. And um, when you churn cream, you disrupt the milk fat globule membrane. So this is one of the reasons why if you melt butter and you put it in, on a, in, a, in some water, it floats to the top. Mm. So that globule membrane has been disrupted. And I think that's one of the reasons why you see in clinical studies that when you feed people either cream or butter, they both start out as cream, right? I mean, cream is cream, obviously, but butter starts out as cream. Butter seems to have an adverse effect on blood lipids, whereas cream doesn't. So it's, this, it's the presence of this like milk fat globule membrane that I think makes uh, the fat in full fat dairy very healthy. Um, but its disruption, I think, is what can lead to adverse, a sort of adverse lipid response um, in some to, to butter. When you say an adverse lipid response, you're saying I eat the butter and it changes the composition or the amount of the lipids in my blood? Yes, so like it'll raise like LDL cholesterol. And actually the mechanism by which saturated fat raises LDL um, is, is quite interesting. It reduces availability of the LDL receptor on, on liver cells, on hepatocytes. So the way that your body works, it's, it's like a very elegant plumbing system. Your liver sends out these ApoB-containing particles, lipoproteins, right? Like milk fat globule membrane, but in your blood, mm -hmm. LDL, VLDL, what have you. 
And the idea is before long, you want the liver to suck those particles back up, right? The liver will dismantle them, use the cholesterol to create bile acids, for example. Um, and it, it relies on the availability of these, they're literally called the L LDL receptors on the surface of the liver. And saturated fat actually rate causes an elevation of LDL cholesterol I mean, in a, the blood. In the blood. Because it's blocking the uptake. Yes, in the liver. Interesting. Yeah, and not all saturated fatty acids do this, I should add. So, I mean, there's, you know, nuance, I think. Um, we've heard for many years, and, and something that continues to be echoed by uh, particularly the vegan community is that saturated fat is bad. But sat a, a fat is not a fat, just like a carb is not a carb and a protein is not a, a protein. Um, certain saturated fats do do this uh, more than others. And so it seems to be the case that butter um, reduces availability of this of the LDL receptor, whereas other full-fat dairy products don't, hmm. which is which is fascinating. So why then has dairy been on everybody's hit list in terms of creating problems? Is it just that so many people are lactose intolerant, or is there some other element to dairy that creates other problems? You know, that's a really great question. I think it has to do with the fact, I mean, many people are lactose intolerant. I think there's a big push now towards plant-based diets. There's a lot of money behind it, right? A push towards the consumption of fake meat products, right? Which, mm -hmm. which I like to call the equivalent of human pet food. You know, it's like ultra-processed junk. Um, but also, and I, I, I drink this stuff sometimes, but like almond milk and macadamia nut milk, like all these, all these like plant-based milks, there's a lot of money going into them. So there's this big push away from dairy milk. Um, and also, admittedly, like in the, in the wellness community, dairy has been demonized for some time. People will say that it's inflammatory. Um, Meta-analyses actually show that, that for most people, dairy is actually not inflammatory. Hmm. Um, so I'm gonna give you a weird anecdote. It is purely anecdotal. Sure. But I was, on Saturday and Sunday, I was eating the toppings off of Domino's pizza. <laughs> and the only toppings I get are cheese, and I would do really light sauce, so even that was like very little. So I would do the cheese, um, olives, pepperoni. And I was eating it and loved it, and I just started noticing on a Sunday that every Sunday night I would feel like hot from the inside of my body. Wow. And it was just like a little eh, uncomfortable and I'd sleep a little weird that night. And I'm like, why am I always on Sunday? And on like Saturday, I would allow myself to cheat. So if I wanted a candy bar, I'd have a candy bar. If I wanted a bit of ice cream, I'd have ice cream. But on Sunday, I wouldn't. So Sunday, it was just the toppings from Domino's. There was nothing else in my diet that I would consider, you know, sort of a cheat. And finally, I was like, is it possible that I have a bad reaction to dairy? So let me do the same thing, but go to like really light cheese. Hmm. And it stopped happening. Interesting. So I was like, whoa, the only thing I affected was the amount of cheese that I was intaking over multiple meals. Because I would get a pizza on Saturday and a pizza on Sunday. So I'm now cutting both of them in half effectively in terms of the amount of cheese. And the, the effect went away 100%. Now I know that's anecdotal, but I was like, whoa, maybe dairy really is doing some negative thing. So you couple that with all the literature saying there's an issue. I know a lot of people have skin responses, like yeah. acne and stuff from dairy. Right. Everybody's different. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm not uh, saying that everybody should, should go out, especially if, you're, if you know that you're sensitive to it. Um, I mean, some people 
do feel better cutting out casein, which is- But aren't you saying like at a meta level, the people that, and I mean, maybe this is the people that eat dairy yeah. are pre-selected because they're not lactose level? Well, there are also, there's some level. confounding variables here, right? Because like Domino's pizza, who knows like if that's even cheese. Don't you dare say something <laughs> bad about my Domino's. No, I mean, I'm, I'm being glib, but like wh- who knows what, is it is it is it just cheese or maybe it's like some kind of like processed cheese yeah. cut with grain and seed oils that is a terrifying but very possible it's yeah it's proposition it is possible so i would i would try to like a b test that by going and, and getting some like some some higher quality cheese that you know is just cheese mm-hmm. um and also there could be some kind of interaction with like the you know the oils and the and the emulsifiers that are sometimes used i mean that's the thing is that restaurants are notorious cost cutters I'm a big advocate of steering away as best as one can from grain and seed oils because in restaurants we know that they're just they're they're heated and they're reheated and they're, they're they become toxic you know essentially by the time they're served on the plate, um, and so that's just a problem with like with eating out in general. You can't always predict how a food is going to make you feel. My wife knows that all too well, and we had the very. Uh, unpleasantly eye-opening experience of realizing that even a lot of high-end restaurants, when they say that it's just olive oil, it's really blended oil. And so you now have to ask very specifically, is this blended oil or is this 100% extra virgin olive oil? The servers will never know. They always go back and ask the chef and then they're always as surprised as anybody else and say, oh my God, we, you know, I didn't realize, but this actually is blended oil. Yeah. We're like, whoa. Yeah. So, and that just absolutely ruins Lisa's stomach. So. Oh yeah, it's bad. I. I mean, there's, there's. I mean, this is controversial too. There, there is within the nutritional and medical orthodoxy, there is still a major push towards these ultra refined, refined bleached and deodorized grain and seed oils, mm-hmm. which to me are such low quality food. I mean, let's just, I mean, just from a food quality standpoint alone. And give me some of the, um, are we talking canola oil here? Like what's the, not necessarily name brand, but yeah. like what's the type of thing I'm pulling off the shelf? So canola oil is probably, and I'm not an advocate for the consumption of canola oil, but it's probably the best of the gaggle. Really? Because it's, a, it's, it's got a higher proportion of monounsaturated fat, hmm. which is chemically quite stable. I'm not advocating for it. Um, I, I personally avoid it. Um, but why do you avoid it if it's well because it's in that it's in that category of of refined bleached and deodorized grain and seed oil so canola oil corn oil soybean oil so um, it's offensive but the least offensive right okay how I would so I I get then what makes it offensive what makes it the least offensive well one of the major problems with these grain and seed oils is that they have a very high proportion of what's called polyunsaturated fatty acids PUFAs Mm -hmm. for short and PUFAs are not in any way dangerous right they're found in all fat-containing foods contain some proportion of PUFAs, right? So grass-fed beef has PUFAs in it. Wild fatty fish has PUFAs in it. Avocados have some component, some pr- proportion of, of PUFAs in it. The issue is that in whole foods, those PUFAs, which are very delicate and damage-prone, they're prone to a, a form of chemical disfigurement called oxidation. They're protected in whole foods by the antioxidants that nature has, has, has packaged them with, right? Nature thought ahead. Nature was like, these fats are very delicate, they're very damage prone. Let's bundle foods that contain these polyunsaturated fats in any significant quantity with vitamin E, which is one of the most important fat-soluble antioxidants in nature, right? The issue with grain and seed oils is that, A, these fats are rich in polyunsaturated fats, which are very delicate and damage prone, and whether it's via heat um, or, or mechanical or chemical extraction, um, they're subject to forces that accelerate this oxidative process, right? Light, heat, and oxygen all 
catalyze and accelerate this oxidative process. And they're stripped of the antioxidants that in whole foods would protect them. So the reason why I would say that canola oil is, you know, maybe the best of, of the worst is that it's got a, a lower proportion of these polyunsaturated fat, uh, of these polyunsaturated fats. On the other hand, it's got a higher proportion of omega-3 fats, which are actually more delicate and damage prone than omega-6 fats. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, again, advocating for their consumption, but, um, but you know, it's got a higher proportion of, of monounsaturated fat, which monounsaturated means it only contains one double bond, which means that under normal circumstances, it's actually quite chemically stable. That monounsaturated fat is the primary fatty acid found in extra virgin olive oil. It's also found in abundance in grass-fed beef and wild salmon and the like. But all of these grain and seed oils, whether we're talking about canola oil, soybean oil, grapeseed oil is probably the worst um, because it's about, I believe, 80 to 90% polyunsaturated fat. In, during the production chain, they all undergo a process, a step called deodorization, which is the food industry's equivalent of the witness protection program. It basically, it takes these oils, which would otherwise contain really bitter flavors, noxious, noxious uh, aromas that, that consumers wouldn't want, right? And it, it, it absolves them of any character. That's the deodorization step. Now, the issue is that that step creates a small but significant amount of trans fats, mm -hmm. which we know there's no safe level of, of trans fat consumption. I mean, the FDA banned their most um, common uh, occurrence, the partially hydrogenated fat, fats. As someone who is constantly learning new information and skills, I've found some tricks to most effectively and efficiently retain and remember that information. And one of the keys to this process is actively engaging with the content. You have to use it. And when it comes to learning a new language, the most efficient app out there is Babbel. With Babbel's revolutionary conversation-based approach, learning a new language is both efficient and effective. With quick 10-minute lessons rooted in real-life situations, you can start actually speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Take it from somebody who has struggled mightily to learn Greek to impress my beloved wife and my in-laws. I really wish Babbel had existed back then. It would have helped so much. So I highly encourage you guys to check out Babbel today and take advantage of the special deal for Impact Theory listeners right now. Get 55% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash impact theory. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash impact theory. And that's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com. Again, slash impact theory. Rules and restrictions may apply. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com.
It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet to cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Why is that? So my understanding, and it's probably a super lay person's understanding of trans fats, is that basically the, the, the bonds in it become rigid. So it's normally the fat molecules quite squishy and it becomes rigid. And then when those, when you uptake that into your body and you use those fat cells to make your own cell membranes, you're using these rigid, brittle um, fat cells. And so it makes the actual membrane on your own cells brittle and rigid. Is that More actually rigid. what's happening? Yeah, I mean, that's what happens when it, once those, those fats have Become, have been integrated into the phospholipid bilayer, which is what it's called, which is how those fats sort of orient themselves within the, um, the cell membrane. But it comes down to the double bonds and the fact that they are uh, electrochemically unstable. Um, and monounsaturated fats, the mono implies that they have one double bond. The polyunsaturated fats, the poly and polyunsaturated fats imply that they have multiple double bonds. And so on the spectrum of monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats, the monounsaturated fats are actually more saturated because they have fewer double bonds. When you have a double bond, actually, so double bonds generally, they, what they do is they make a, a, a cell, they help promote the characteristic of membrane fluidity, which is actually the opposite. So it, they, because these double bonds, they cause a kink in the fatty acid chain, it doesn't allow the fatty, acid, um, the fatty acids to to aggregate as tightly as they would with saturated fats. Saturated fats are straight. And so that allows them to pack together more tightly. And so that's why saturated fats are um, solid at room temperature. Polyunsaturated fats actually generally um, promote this characteristic of membrane fluidity. And we need polyunsaturated fats. So this is not to demonize them in any way. We need both the omega-6s and the omega-3s. And actually the polyunsaturated fatty acid that's most abundant in grain and seed oils, linoleic acid, we do have some physiologic requirement for that fat, right? The issue is we overconsume it today and we consume them in the form of these grain and seed oils, which again are prone to oxidation and lipid peroxidation in particular is a major contributor to oxidative stress in the brain. So we don't even have the long-term data that makes me feel comfortable um, consuming these kinds of fats at the level that your average American is consuming them. We know that they lower LDL relative to saturated fat. And I think that's one of the, if not the reason that the medical and nutritional orthodoxy loves them. Um, But yeah, they're prone, they're prone to oxidation. And we know that the brain is a crucible for oxidative stress and not just do they oxidize, but they generate these really toxic um, secondary products of oxidation, like aldehydes, certain aldehydes, which we know are are no bueno. So I take a sort of precautionary principle um, approach know with these with these fats and I think that I think that they're they're definitely worth avoiding also 20% of the oxygen that you're that you're using 
your 20% of whole body oxygen consumption is being used by the brain. And the brain accounts for 2% of the body's mass. So 20% of the oxygen in, in a container that, that speaks for 2% of the mass of your body, right? It's a container that's ultimately the size of a grapefruit, right? So you've got all this oxygen being used to create energy in this tiny space. And your brain is comprised primarily of these kinds of fats, polyunsaturated fats. That's why we need to get them from diet, right? We need to get them, but we should be getting them from whole foods, from wild fatty fish, from nuts and seeds, from um, avocados, you know? But that's why the brain is essentially a crucible for oxidative stress. And oxidative stress is at the foundation of conditions like Alzheimer's disease, of Parkinson's disease. It can exacerbate pre-existing disease states, right? So it's a big problem. And I'm, I'm not going to say that, you know, we have all the data to say that these seed oils are the smoking gun with, with conditions like Alzheimer's disease. By the way, these are multifactorial conditions. So, you know, I'm not, I don't want to scare people into thinking that these oils are the cause of, the, of those conditions. And we, we honestly don't have that data to say even that, they're, that they are with, with, with absolute certainty that they are causally related. That's the hypothesis. But I don't think that we will ever have that kind of data. That's sort of my plea to people, right? And the medical order is what is to is to approach these oils with great caution because they didn't exist in the human food supply mm. prior to 100 years ago and mechanistically we see that they're so prone to this this sort of chemical chemical degradation and disfigurement and that's relevant to the brain and also I'll add this is another important point that the context in which these oils are being consumed is generally a diet that's low in antioxidants low in in fat-soluble antioxidants like vitamin E, which we know is crucially important. Vitamin E is one what of the most important. What do we eat to get vitamin E? So almonds are a fantastic source. Avocados are a fantastic source. Grass-fed, grass-finished beef is a great source of vitamin E. Mm -hmm. You've got three times the vitamin E in grass-finished beef as you have in grain-finished beef. Generally, in nature, wherever you find polyunsaturated fats, you find um, in the appropriate proportion vitamin E. That's like nature's way to protect these polyunsaturated fats. So we're eating more polyunsaturated fats than ever before in human history, and we're consuming less vitamin E. I think 90% of adults don't consume, adequate, don't consume an adequate amount of vitamin E, which is uh, actually vitamin E represents about, I believe, eight um, isoforms of vitamin E. We underconsume, I mean, all of them because we're not eating, we're eating so few whole foods these days, mm. and we're, we're over-consuming these, these grain and seed oils. The more polyunsaturated fats you consume, the higher your requirement for vitamin E, and most people aren't consuming adequate vitamin E. So I think it's a, I think it's a huge problem. And anecdotally, totally anecdotally, you know that I got started because my mom was very sick. Yeah. She had a, a form of dementia for many years. She and had Lewy body dementia? Yeah. That's what Robin Williams had, right? Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Horrible disease, horrible disease. And, and my mom passed away three years ago. And this is just an anecdote. Take it with a grain of salt. But um, my mom ate a diet that um, any dietitian of the 80s and 90s would have said, she's well on done. the right path, yeah, well done. Good on you. I grew up with these grain and seed oils in my kitchen, right? Big plastic see-through jug of corn oil by the stove, yeah. margarine in my fridge. I grew you up me eating, both. yeah, I grew up eating these kinds of fats. Now, I'm not going to say that they are what caused my mom's condition, but I do, you know, I, it's, it's my hypothesis, hypothesis that along with the overconsumption of grain and seeds, with, with refined grain products, rather, these oils, um, yeah, I don't think that they're doing our, our health any favors. 
Yeah, I want to go back to this idea of victim blaming. You're such a kind person, and I love how you're trying to position this to make sure that the most people can hear you as humanly possible. But what I don't want to get lost in there is that, like I'll speak for myself, I have unintentionally made a lot of poor choices with my diet because I didn't know better. And then I've intentionally made poor choices with my diet because it was a lot of fun. And it's really important to me to now be at a place where I'm at least more or less to the best of everybody's belief at this point, I know what to do to like, if I'm feeling inflamed and my joints are hurting, I feel in control. I know what to do to bring that pain down. So I just want to make sure that it doesn't get lost in the kindness that there really are, there's cause and effect to what you eat. And while it's not all known, it will for sure change over time. You definitely shouldn't feel bad about even eating things that you know are bad for you. Like, don't feel bad about it, right? Like when I eat bad foods, I'm not feeling guilty. I'm like, this is a trade-off, right? I may be shortening my life by some amount, but this is really fun, so I'm going to do it. And certainly if I didn't know any better, I mean, Jesus, what can you do? None of us really know, like, you know, what are we doing? Like when I discovered that blankets had like, you know, crazy chemicals in them, uh, I went out and bought an all-natural blanket. That shit is scratchy. So now I still use my old filled with terrible chemicals blanket because it's soft as hell. So, you know, my thing is, look, we're, I, I don't want anybody to feel ashamed or anything like that. But I want people to understand that you can get control of this, that if your diet is leading you somewhere that you don't want to go, that you really can learn about it and make choices that will yield a very different outcome. So for me, I look at my family. They're all morbidly obese. And... I, coming from the same stock, was headed in the same direction, learned about nutrition and was able to take myself in a completely different direction. So I really want people to understand you can eat whatever you want and I'm not judging you. I think it's amazing. Make your choices. Um, But hey, if you're ever getting a result that you don't want, you can make a new choice and get a new result. Yeah, so beautifully said. And to me, I think what what it really comes down to is um, giving people t- the tools to make uh, to 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 make an informed choice at the end of the day, because a lot of people when they show up to their doctor's office with these conditions that take years to develop, years mm-hmm. if not decades, right? They're like, "Why me?" And so, as long as I think I I know that I'm putting good information out to to help people make an informed choice, then then by all means indulge when when you choose to, because no single meal, single indulgence is going to sway your health in any direction, positive or negative. No, mm. you know, it's not eating for optimal brain health isn't about eating a handful of berries every once in a while. It's about your dietary pattern as a whole. It's about how you're eating every single day. Um, and with regard to, I mean, other things that I think people really ought to stop doing that will uh, make a measurable, have a measurable positive impact on their health. Can we talk about mouthwash for a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're trying to like really fuck me up with this mouthwash <laughs> thing. Yeah, this is a this is something that um, the more I learn about it, the more uh, the more convinced I am that this is something we need to be talking about because nobody is right. Um, there's a lot of money that goes into the the sale of, of mouthwash. In fact, I was at a, a drugstore um, not too long ago, and I saw this big ad imploring people with type two diabetes, which is very common in this country, right? that um, periodontal disease is a big problem for, for people with type 2 diabetes, so they should buy our mouthwash, right? It's a big mouthwash brand. But mouthwash is a major problem, um, and I'll tell you why. People who frequently use mouthwash 
what you're doing is you're nuking bacteria in your mouth that are required to create um, and recycle nitric oxide. And we create nitric oxide in different ways. One of the reasons why nose breathing is so important because we create nitric oxide via the nitric oxide synthase enzyme in the epithelial, epithelial cells of our paranasal sinus. But oral bacteria are a, play a crucial role in this nitric oxide pathway. Um, and the, the reason why is they help to reduce nitrate from food to nitrite. So reducing it means that they're removing an, an oxygen molecule. And it's nitrate that enters, that basically creates nitric oxide in our blood vessels. And they also recycle the nitric oxide um, that we uh, produce endogenously when we're exercising. So, when, so far, these are a lot of words that like, I sort of understand. But like, what's the real impact of my twice a day Listerine habit? So studies show, and we need more research, but what they've shown in obese patients is that people who use antiseptic mouthwash, so that's the key word. So mouthwash that is germ-destroying, antibacterial mouthwash, twice a day or more, have a 50% increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. That's right? so weird. And doubling of risk for hypertension, so high blood pressure. But it makes sense when you realize that you're killing the bacteria that help to increase levels of nitric oxide. But what is nitric oxide doing in the body that would impact type 2 diabetes? Because it's not just involved in blood pressure, it's a, it's a cellular signaling molecule that's involved in insulin sensitivity, which is Weird. important. Insulin resistance is the cornerstone of type 2 diabetes. So it's basically affecting our body's ability to, pro to process sugar. So if I were wearing a continuous glucose monitor and I'm using my Listerine, and then I stop, would I notice a difference in my reading? If you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor and you stop, you could potentially, yeah, you could potentially see um, if, if this bears out, right? Mm -hmm. um, because these are correlational studies. Sure. But um, if this is borne out, um, you would potentially see an improvement in your body's ability to partition sugar um, if you cut out. But here's the thing, is that one, even just one use can increase your blood pressure. Um, and also, they've shown, and this was a randomized control trial, they've shown that using antiseptic mouthwash after a workout, so we know that exercise is as powerful as medicine for helping to normalize our blood pressure. Yep. They found that using mouthwash after exercise negates to a large degree the antihypertensive effects of exercise. So it basically negates some of, one of the most important benefits of exercise, hmm. using mouthwash after a workout. So the take home is don't use antiseptic mouthwash after a workout. Now the type of mouthwash that they use in that study is called chlorhexidine, which is a, um, I believe it's a prescription only um, antiseptic mouthwash, but I would not uh, regularly use an alcohol-based mouthwash for, the, for that reason, because you're, you're basically nuking the bacteria. You wouldn't take an antibiotic every day. We know that we, we sh we've overused antibacterial hand soap. Mm. So why, who in their right mind would, would think that it makes sense to sterilize the oral cavity every single day? You're supposed to have bacteria in your mouth. Yeah, but like it, my mouth literally tastes better if I do Listerine. Because there are days where I'll just brush my teeth and I forget or I'm traveling and so I only have toothpaste, I don't have the Listerine. Yeah. And I'm like, I notice. Well, the increased risk was, was seen for people who use it twice or more per day. So 
I mean, you could hypothetically use it for use it use it once a day if you wanted, um, but I I personally wouldn't. I would tongue scrape, which is a, a great way to freshen up the mouth. Like with your toothbrush, just yeah, you could use you could do that. You'd brush your tongue, How flossing. Do you, do it? you well, there there are actual like these medical tongue scraping really uh, things that you can buy. Yeah, because a lot of the like the the bad breath bacteria it aggregates uh-huh. on the tongue. But yeah, I mean, I think like flossing regularly. I I mean, it blows my mind that there are people that don't. We're getting way off topic, but like, it blows my mind that there, there are people that don't floss. Like, all I need to do is floss once and see what I'm pulling out of my teeth. And that to me is like, I floss now twice a day. Um, I also, you know, bl- brush. I um, think that, you know, fluoride has, has, has antiseptic uh, properties. So I personally use a fluoride free um, toothpaste. I use wow. toothpaste with hydroxyapatite, which um, is actually fairly common in Japan. There are studies that, Suggests that it's as good at re- helping to remineralize teeth as fluoride. Um, so I use a, a and, and hydroxyapatite is a natural component of bone and teeth. So there's no sort of antiseptic quality of, of uh, nanohydroxyapatite. Um, so I floss, I brush, and then I eat an evolutionary, evolutionarily appropriate diet. I cut out the refined grain products, which we know are easily retained by oral bacteria and are highly cariogenic. I actually talk about this in Genius Cariogenic? Kitchen. Yeah, they promote the formation of caries, which is the, the medical way of saying cavities. Got it. Um, yeah, they promote the growth of streptococcus, streptococcus mutans, which is the primary cavity-causing bacteria in the mouth. Huh. Um, but the problem with rinsing with uh, antiseptic mouthwash is you're nuking the bad bacteria, but you're also nuking the good bacteria. Right. The bacteria that help to break down nitrate in our foods, like beets and arugula, right? Beets and arugula, we know, are rich in nitrates, but if you're regularly rinsing your mouth with antiseptic mouthwash, you're, you're basically disallowing the ability of your food to have a, neuro, a, a cardioprotective effect, right? Mm. Like, you could be eating all the beets and arugula you want, but if you're destroying the bacteria in your mouth that are required to reduce the nitrate that those foods contain to nitrite, you're, you're basically like, A, you're, you're wasting your money, and you're wasting your effort because... We rely on oral bacteria to, um, to derive maximum benefit from those foods. Right. All right, super interesting. Now let's get into what are the things that we should be adding. I like your take on meat. Um, I have now, I've really tried to go plant forward. So um, we have, there's a guy here on the team who has a really big percentage gap between his chronological age and his biological age. So... Um, I was like, what do you do? And he had been vegan for years. So I was like, all right, let's do this. And he gave me this concoction to make in the morning. It's largely fruit though. And I was like, there's no way you're going to die. Like when I first saw him eating it, I was like, bro, like that, there's no way that's good for you. And his body composition, of course, he's very, very skinny, has a hard time putting on weight. So I was like, is he like skinny fat? And you know, so anyway, let me try this. Wearing my continuous glucose monitor, I eat this thing. Now, if you eat it slowly, you go up to about 120 or I go up to about 120 and you stay. That's where he goes as well, 120 and he stays. If I eat it fast, I'll go all the way up to 150, uh, which for me, that's like sort of red light high. It's pretty um, high. Yeah. So that is questionable, but, but I've, my body composition did not go up. So I don't know if it's just depressing my calories and the overall caloric intake on the smoothie isn't very high. I don't know. But... Um, but I don't feel great. 
And so I notice on days where I have it, I'm just, meh. I don't know. I, it, it's not traumatic. It's not bad. It's not brain fog. It's nothing. If you were going to give like a, a sense of what's the qualia of your day, I would just say I'm off a little bit. Huh. Um, I wouldn't be able to pinpoint it to it's not brain fog, it's not lack of energy. I don't know, just don't feel normal. Now, if I eat meat, I feel like a million bucks. I'm ready to rock. So, have you reverted your position then? Like, are, have you gone back to like a more yeah? Inclusive? Oh, if I if I immediately I do both, but there might be three or four days where I'll go and I won't have the smoothie. So on those days, I would say I feel normal because I always feel good because my diet's clean just year round, um, and. When I have the smoothie, I feel a little bit off, but it's not catastrophic by any means. Um, and for body composition reasons, sometimes I'll do the shake just because it does seem to help me stay tight, even though it's fruit, which I still can't wrap my head around how that's true. Uh, but it is. Certainly makes me feel fuller from a muscular standpoint. Um, but yeah. So anyway, I keep trying to go plant forward. I'm never loving the way that I feel. There's a lot of dogma around like either moral reasons for needing to go plant forward, but I like the way that you had a take on meat in the book. I'd love for you to go into that. Why meat? Let's get into the weeds a little bit on amino acids. Yeah. 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 I, there's this, you know, I mean, we talked about this push towards plant-based eating and I think that it's, it's great to include plants, right? I mean, it's, we see that Fruit and vegetable consumption is associated with reduced inflammation, with with longevity, all these all these really positive things, right? Observationally, when we look at people's health and their meat consumption habits, people who consume more meat, just because meat has been demonized for so many decades at this point, people who consume more meat, and especially processed meat, they tend to have worse health outcomes. But that's because people who eat more meat tend to be more sedentary, they tend to smoke more. People who are vegan um, tend to be more health conscious, right? They tend to, um, or, or people that have plant-heavy diets, right? People who are, here's a good example of, of healthy user bias, right? Like, if you were to look observationally at the population level at all the people in the, in the U.S. who eat quinoa, and then you were to sort of um, rank them in terms of how much quinoa they're eating, right? I guarantee you, you'd see that people who eat quinoa often have great health outcomes, right? Is it because of the quinoa or is it in spite of the quinoa, right? That's where we have to recognize. Because when you start eating quinoa, you're shopping at Air One. There you go. The fact that you know how to pronounce quinoa (laughs) is a good sign, right? That's a good sign, which most people wouldn't know how to pronounce quinoa, right? Especially if they're not health food shoppers Mm. or if they're, or, or health conscious um, for that matter. And so that's the, that's the limitation with, I think, epidemiology when it comes to teasing out the value or the health effect that meat um, can have, right? But when you look at what meat is, I mean, it's a pristine source of protein. It's the highest quality, highest biological, biological value source of protein to be found in nature, right? We can look at the digestible, indispensable amino acid score, which is you know, the latest and greatest way of measuring protein digestibility. And we see that meat is consistently at the top. I mean, soy comes close, uh, but you know, eggs, whey protein, grass-fed beef, chicken, always at the top. Um, the proportion of essential amino acids is phenomenal, right? Like you get a very high proportion of the nine essential amino acids, very uh, concentrated in branched chain amino acids, which we know are crucially important for halting muscle protein breakdown and stimulating muscle protein synthesis. 
we know that high protein foods, meat in particular, also tend to contain a lot of really important micronutrients that, that are typically under-consumed today in their most bioavailable form, I'll add. So, you know, when you're getting micronutrients, whether it's B12 or iron or zinc from an animal-sourced food, those micronutrients are plug-and-play to your body, right? They don't have to undergo complex biochemical transformation that vary in, in, the, in their efficacy from person to person, right? Like plant-based uh, omega-3s, for example, um, alpha-linolenic acid, very constrained in terms of our ability to generate the biologically relevant um, omega-3 fats, eicosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, DHA fat, um, from the plant-based form, right? Women are about 10 times better at it than men. Um, women, I think about 10% of the plant-based omega-3s that they, that they ingest will get converted to DHA fat. It's thought that women have a higher uh, ability to do this because of childbearing, right? But men, um, less than 1% of the plant-based omega-3s that we ingest actually get, get converted to DHA fat. So that's a miserable, I mean, statistic right there. Whereas the DHA fat that you ingest from wild salmon or from omega-3 enriched eggs, plug and play for the human body. And this is true for all of the, I mean, many, many of the micronutrients that you see in, in, in animal products. And they're without anti-nutrients that um, can potentially hinder their absorption. So I'm a big advocate of the consumption of meat. I think it's, I think it's really important. And also, I'll add that there's this big issue of food access and food distribution in this country, right? You can go into any, almost any supermarket in this country and buy a pack of ground beef, right? And to me, that is going to be a much healthier dinner than boxed mac and cheese, right? Mm. You can go into any gas station almost and find canned tuna, right? Which is going to be a pristine source of protein, great source of um, minerals like selenium and such. Um, and so I think we, we have to really um, be careful not to demonize these kinds, of, these kinds of foods. Now, I'm not saying everybody should go out and become carnivores, right? That's not my approach. But uh, I think we do need to get back to a, some sort of semblance of common sense when it comes to the kinds of foods that we know that humans have been eating since we've been human. Yeah, it's interesting watching some of the nature shows and seeing like um, there are, like take the pelican. A pelican will try to eat a cat. It's not like, you know, we have this image of like, oh, uh, monkeys only eat, you know, shoots and leaves. No, no, no. If they can get a hold of something, they will eat it. Nature's and, wild. Yeah, nature's wild. Um, so, yeah, I think it's pretty clear from an evolutionary standpoint that humans are omnivores. Um, and I like the idea of eat what you need to build. And so if you need to build muscle and, you know, brain tissue and all that, well, then you're going to eat the things that are actually that versus eating a plant, which has those, you know, amino acids for the most part, but not quite in the most available form. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah. Also, I mean, low fat vegetarian diets are associated with, with reduced testosterone. Um, it's not like plants don't have a potential downside, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we have to talk about the fact that plants today grown, especially in the industrial plant agriculture system, harbor heavy metals. Um, they are vehicles for herbicides and pesticides, which, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that organic is better than conventional. I think there's debate, a healthy debate on that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's about ultimately 
um, a balance, a balance of both. But, um, but protein, I think, is important. It's highly satiating. It assuages our hunger, I think, in a really powerful way, right, which fat and carbs can't do. Um, again, the, the, the fact that high-protein foods contain a, a repository of, of other micronutrients, which we know are, are beneficial, um, I, think it's, I think it's really important. And there's this fear now, I think, around protein and longevity. And we know that people who are, people over 65 who eat higher levels of protein have increased longevity, reduced risk of cancer. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I take, a, I take a pretty firm stance on that. Eggs, for example. Eggs are a, another food that you can go anywhere in this country, right? Food deserts. You'll be able to find eggs, right? They're not going to be the most pristine pasture-raised eggs that you and I might find in our local Whole Foods, for example. But they're still a uh, health food. There's still a cognitive multivitamin, right? Egg yolks are incredible. So, um, so yeah, I'm really against the sort of fear mongering around, around. Is there product. such a thing as too many eggs? Ate a lot of eggs. Yeah. A lot. There's a eggs, dietary cholesterol we now know has very little long-term effect on, on serum cholesterol. There might be uh, an acute effect. Um, because when you eat more cholesterol, when you, when you, through your diet, ingest more cholesterol, your liver is going to create less of it. When you ingest less, your liver is going to create more. So the body wants homeostasis, mm -hmm. right? The issue is that there's a bit of a lag time. So if you, uh, from one day to the next, start eating more cholesterol, um, dietary cholesterol, if you're on a low cholesterol diet and then you start eating more cholesterol, you may perhaps see an increase in your uh, blood lipids, but that'll normalize over time. Um, the, the key sort of needle mover on cholesterol tends to be saturated, certain saturated fatty acids, um, and we talked to sort of about this, but, um, but I, you know, with foods like butter, coconut oil, they'll raise your, your LDL cholesterol. And there's really no nutritional value to, I think, like eating an excess of, of isolated fats, right? You're going to, when you, when you adopt a diet that contains animal products like red meat, you're going to, you're going to have a cholesterol level that's lower than, I mean, that's, I'm sorry, higher than that of a of a vegan perhaps, mm -hmm. but I think that there's benefit to, um, there's, there are other, other benefits to be had from consuming these foods, right? The benefits outweigh the risks. The fact that meat can help you stay robust and healthy. It can op help optimize your testosterone, your, your, your hormones, your testosterone. Um, the fact that it provides all of these other micronutrients that help your body carry out all of its many sort of faculties, um, I think is, is non-trivial, it's a non-trivial benefit. Yeah, man. Speaking of non-trivial benefits, where can people follow you? Thank you, brother. Um, so I'm very active on Instagram at Max Lugavere. I host my own podcast called The Genius yes, Life. Yes, you which, do. Yeah, you've been on it. Um, love to get you back. It's called The Genius Life. And my new book, Genius Kitchen, is out now wherever you buy, wherever you get your books. So Awesome. All right, guys. Your health is everything. Please take it seriously. Get it right. This guy does it right. You will definitely want to pick up the book. Uh, He's got multiple books, all of which will lead you to a lifestyle that you will never regret getting into. And speaking of things you will never regret, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.